Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Thank you, Miria, and uh, the band for leading us so well, and good morning. Great to be with you. My name's Reuben, as, um, as Miria said before, and um, that's a great thing to be praying, that God would prepare and use... Uh, uh, prepare us and, and use these words to, to strengthen and encourage us this morning, that He would teach us what He needs us to hear. Uh, today we conclude um, our little mini-series that we've been doing over these last couple of weeks on the Kingdom of God is like... Dot, dot, dot. Uh, and it's been a great series, uh, I think. Um, lots, of, lots of variety and especially, like we said last week, a great chance to listen to some stories of how the Kingdom of God is playing out in our own community. And today's contribution, as we think about what the Kingdom of God is like, today's contribution comes from Jesus as He teaches us on what the Kingdom of God is like in Matthew chapter 13, which we will have on the screen. It's just a very short a uh, very short couple of verses that we're going to look at today. Uh, the Kingdom of God from uh, Jesus' teaching, Matthew 13, verse 31, we read these words. He, Jesus, that is, told them another parable. The Kingdom of Heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows... It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. The meaning and thrust of this parable is fairly clear, I think. I can explain it in about five minutes. In fact, that is exactly what I will attempt to do. But after that, what I want to do is tell you the story of someone who I think sincerely believed the truth of this parable and whose life offers just one of many, but it's, I think, a good illustration of how God keeps on growing His kingdom in the manner of this mustard seed parable. Uh, like I said last week, and of course, if you were here, you know last week we had people sharing stories from our own community. The story I want to share shortly will take us actually far outside of this community to see what God does all over His world, but particularly we're going to go to a different era, uh, somewhat to the past and to a different um, part of the world, but it will be the same king who we, um, who we will see at work building his kingdom. I'll leave that as a little mystery. I'll tell you who we're talking about in a moment, but um, uh, let's talk about the meaning of this parable. Just very briefly, uh, what does it mean? Well, uh, in one sentence, the kingdom of God is like something that can be easily overlooked, but in time becomes something really quite impressive and significant. Put slightly differently, the Kingdom of God has humble beginnings, but inevitably it snowballs into something with huge impact. That is, it's a parable about contrast. Obviously, there's something about growth in there, but I think the main thrust of this parable is about contrast between what it looks like to start with and what it ends up actually becoming and being. 
We're told that the mustard seed is very tiny in verse 32. It starts off as something small and insignificant. You drop it, you would never find it again. It can easily go unnoticed. But as it grows, amazingly, it ends up like this tree that um, Pete's going to put up on the screen. Apparently, this is um, the, the bush or the, the shrub-like plant that we're talking about here. Uh, from what I've been able to learn on this, it's, it's uh, apparently this kind of shrubby tree thing that grows commonly on the rocky shores of Lake Galilee and around the general region, region that Jesus uh, ministered in, and it might have even been, uh, been in the view of the disciples as he shared this parable, as he gave this teaching. That is, from a, a tiny speck of seed to something that the birds can comfortably make a home in. The connection, of course, that we are meant to make first is to Jesus, the King of this kingdom. Jesus' kingdom does not start in a very impressive way. A child is born to an insignificant and poor family in a backwater part of the Roman Empire. His ministry starts with just him. It's tiny. Just him. And then... It grows to a little more to include the 12, and then some more disciples, men and women who followed and learnt from Jesus, travelled with him, and then he's killed, like a seed, buried in the ground of the tomb. But of course, his resurrection, uh, as we we sang about uh, just before his resurrection that morning, kicks off the growth of the Jesus movement that could easily have been overlooked in the beginning, but in just 300 years would change the course of history as Christianity became the official religion of the whole Roman Empire. And that was really just the beginning. That seemed massive at the time, but think about where it's gone from there. So first we're supposed to think about the way that um, Jesus really shows us the, the meaning of this parable in his own life and the way that the kingdom explodes from his own death and resurrection, but the kingdom of God is also like that in the life of individuals. It often starts in the life of someone like you, me, people we know as something very small, maybe a conversation, an encounter that turns eventually into a commitment to follow Jesus that ends up turning someone's life upside down as the kingdom mustard seed is planted in a person, a massive contrast inevitably follows. Um, This is a parable that I love because I need to keep being reminded of this truth. I tend to be more pessimistic in my view of the future and what God can do. I find it easier to see the possible downsides than the reason for hope. But this parable reminds me of the inevitability of growth and the way that God is going to make His kingdom into something beautiful and unmissable and significant. The mustard seeds keep getting planted. They keep growing into massive bushes. God's kingdom continues to change the world and there's absolutely nothing that can stop that. There's no reason to believe that's suddenly going to stop being the case. So that encourages me towards hope, and I trust that that is helpful uh, for you too. Now, I promised a story, and so here's where I want to change gears just a little bit, I suppose, and spend the rest of our time hearing about someone who was a bit of a mustard seed in North Africa. Uh, She was an English missionary who is 
known, uh, so it won't, won't surprise me if some of you have heard her name before, um, but I also will not at all be surprised if, you've, if many of us have never heard of this person that I'm going to share about. But I hope you enjoy her story. Her name is Lilius Trotter, and we'll see her on the screen here. Um, <clears throat> you can tell she was born some time ago in London, England, to Isabella and Alexander Trotter, who was a wealthy stockbroker. Alexander's first wife had died, leaving six children, and he married, remarried Isabella, and Lilius was the first of three born to his second wife. Uh, now, both of Lilius's parents were committed evangelical Christians, highly educated, um, dedicated to humanitarian, uh, humanitarianism, to trying to improve um, the lot of many. Sadly, her father passed away when she was 12, uh, the family moved and were apparently next-door neighbours to Anthony Trollope, who some of you might have heard of, famous novelist at the time. Um, she, as she grew up, it became clear that she had an amazing natural talent for painting and so headed squarely in the direction of a very promising career as an artist. You can see a few of her um, artworks on the screen. Uh, it may or may not be to your taste, I don't know, but seems pretty good to me. Not really an expert in art, but um, hear what uh, one biographer writes about her. Everything in the life of Lilius Trotter had favoured her career as an artist. Nature had richly endowed her. The circumstances into which she was born in 1853 provided financial security while she studied. Her father of Scottish parentage was a charming character of love, generosity and gentleness, combined with high qualities of intellect and acquirements. He always had encouraged his nine children in their pursuit of scientific and artistic studies. He had procured French and German governesses for them, and frequent visits to the continent had given them that poise which only wide, widely travelled persons acquire. So there you go, that, that gives you a bit of a, a sense as to who, who Lilius was. So on one, one such trip to the continent, uh, as they... I suppose we still do call it that, but it sounds a little bit fancy. Um, one trip to the continent, <laughs> Lilius and her mother happened to be staying in the same hotel as someone called John Ruskin, uh, one of the foremost art critics at the time. Uh, he was known for his opinion as a critic uh, that women were quite incapable of producing fine art, um, but it seems that Lilius changed his mind. While they were staying at this hotel in Venice, uh, Lilius's mother wrote to Ruskin asking if he'd take a look at some of her works. And here's what he recalls. Um, so something we have recorded from his diaries. When I was at Venice in 1876, it's about the only thing that makes me now content in having gone there. Two English ladies, mother and daughter, were staying at the same hotel, the Europa. One day the mother sent me a pretty little note asking if I would look at the young lady's drawings and on my somewhat sulky permission, a few were sent, in which I saw there was extremely right-minded and careful work, almost totally without knowledge. I sent back a request that the young lady might be allowed to come out sketching with me. She seemed to learn everything the instant she was shown it, and ever so much more than she was taught. Uh, so this started a, a friendship with Ruskin. They, um, he became a, a teacher, a champion of her work, uh, a mentor to her, believing that she had such exceptional talent that if she would devote herself to art, she could become the greatest living painter. And uh, he um, records that he, he thought she would do things that would become immortal in terms of her artworks. 
But at the same time, so you've got this kind of budding career as an artist going on, and at the same time, Lilius was involved with the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. She was a long-standing volunteer secretary, which wasn't unusual for privileged women like herself. What was unusual was that she canvassed the streets at night alone to reach out to sex workers. Uh, She and some friends rented a hall, set it up as a hostel, and sought to find women uh, who would be able to use it as a safe place to stay, and tried to persuade persuade girls to train for an employable skill outside of sex work. She did this because she was a person deeply moved by the gospel to live a life like Jesus. The one who said, it is not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. I came to seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus said and she had, because of this, a deep love for these women. Her involvement in some large evangelistic rallies at the, at the time added further fuel to her passion for the gospel to be heard and to see lives saved. It came at a time where there were um, big evangelistic movements going on, big rallies and so forth. She was uh, in a choir and counselled new converts in a series of evangelistic talks that D.L. Moody gave, which saw many hundreds come to faith. It was something that God was doing at the time across... Um, across um, uh, the UK. Uh, As far as I can tell, she was someone who had seen Jesus' ability to change people's lives up close, and to her, that was the most exciting thing in the world to be a part of. So, she started giving that all the time and energy that she could alongside her painting. Around this time, uh, so you've got this budding art career, Uh, You've got this involvement and seeing God up close, changing people's lives. Around this time, three things happened that ended up shaping the course of the rest of her life. The first is that she came to the conclusion that she could not pursue a career in art as Ruskin had been encouraging her to do. Uh, Ruskin was completely dumbfounded by this decision when she said to him and when she uh, decided to actually put that to one side. And for the rest of his life... um, we find that he held hope that she might return to this career. He thought it was a terrible shame that she should put that to to one side. But Trotter had become certain that, in her words, I see as clear as daylight now, I cannot give myself to painting in the way that he, John Ruskin, means and continue still to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, So that was thing one that happened. The second is that the stress of the work that she was doing with women on the streets led to physical and emotional breakdown, and she required surgery related to this, but although it was quite a minor surgery, there was a complication that occurred, and that permanently damaged her heart, severely limited her capacity for the rest of her life. She couldn't run as hard as she was used to to going. And thirdly, Um, she became friends with two young women who profoundly reshaped how she saw the world, the world beyond uh, her home country. She writes, I was uh, expected to spend my life in the YWCA and was not interested in missionary work. But I was throwing a good deal with Adeline Braithwaite and Lely Duff and I felt that both of them had taken to heart the outer darkness in a way I had not. 
I do not remember that they said anything to me personally about it, but one felt it right through them. They were all aglow. I saw that they had a fellowship with Jesus that I knew nothing about. So I began to pray, Lord, give me the fellowship with thee over the heathen that thou has given to these two. Um, just excuse the sort of language of the time, but you, you sort of see what she's desiring there. She wants to see people find life in Jesus. That phrase, taken to heart the outer darkness, it's such a striking phrase to me because it shows how these two helped her to see the stark needs of peoples in lands and places where the gospel is not known. They actually are in outer darkness, without hope, under evil and oppressed. That's a terrible state to be in. And so she prays, Lord, give me fellowship. The fellowship that thou hast given to these two. And her prayer within 18 months was answered. Uh, She was at a meeting held by um, a missionary to North Africa who made an appeal at the end asking if anyone else was being led to North Africa, seeking to have people come and join. Uh, Lilia stood up and said, God is calling me at that meeting. She thought this was... uh, This was... um, this was a thing because after meeting those friends, she often spoke about the way the words North Africa sounded in her soul as though a voice was calling her when she prayed. That's how she, how she saw this and thought that meeting, this must be, this must be the connection. And, and so on her 34th birthday, she applied as a candidate to the North African mission, but they actually rejected her because she couldn't pass their medical examination. But because she was a woman of means, she just went anyway. Uh, she worked in... Her, it's, it's such a crazy thing, but um, she just paid her own way there. She, she worked in harmony with the society that she'd applied to go and work with. They couldn't justify taking her. They were kind of concerned about the health and so forth, but she worked alongside them and was self-supporting. So how's that for determination? I think um, she landed in Algeria with um, two other women in similar circumstances, and in her words, uh, this is how she reflected on on that landing in in Algeria, not knowing a soul in the place or a sentence of Arabic or a clue for beginning work on untouched ground. We only knew we had to come. Truly, if God needed weakness, he had it. They spent many years at the start learning uh, language and culture as well as struggling to find a way forward for evangelism. They obviously faced opposition from Islam, but also from the French, Um, Algeria was a French colony at the time and the French were suspicious of what these British women were doing and so tried to undermine them in various ways. Uh, But she eventually found that befriending children enabled her to gain access to the heavily secluded local women. And as she saw it, outreach to women was, in her words, a great line of cleavage in the rock face of Islam. She didn't get too far with the men and the the religious communities, but she found that through befriending women, people were coming to faith. They saw some converts, but also saw many backslide or fall away because of opposition from their families. Some of the women who converted, sadly, were killed for converting. And this is something I found really striking in, um, uh, in reading about um, Lilius's attitudes towards this, tremendously sad, but she says, we came to rejoice in their loss. 
we're glad to let them go, go. One draws a breath of relief when they get safe home to heaven. That's a, yeah, I, I just find it a very striking way to think about it, but um, you see what she's saying there. Uh, Lilius was, was pioneering in the way that she attempted to adapt Christian evangelism to the Algerian culture. Uh, although evangelistic meetings, the big rallies, those were the things that had such influence on her in England, she was astute enough to know that such things were a European idea and would really only work in that context. So she just experimented. She ended up trying things like running a cafe in the native style, but with Christian influence. She conducted readings of the Bible there, accompanied by um, drums in the, the way that the Muslim scriptures would have been read, and began, to, uh, began a craft house to teach young women embroidery and other crafts. She also saw the way that outings to Muslim shrines were um, done often because they were the only chance for fresh air for the women at the time, um, to just get away and have their own space, and so she established a Christian retreat um, near them, which, uh, which functioned as an alternative. If what they were looking for was a retreat, she, she found a way to make her own and, and to use it to uh, teach about Christianity. She used her artistic talents to design cards uh, with, with Bible passages drawn by an Arab um, scribe, and even produced cards with a sentence from the Quran follow, followed by verses from the Old Testament, um, so they might see how... Uh, the truth of what God um, was doing is connected even to um, those that um, the Muslim world sees as their prophets. Uh, so, very clever, very entrepreneurial and, um, and very experimental. Uh, and so, um, uh, yeah, Lilius, she didn't actually see dramatic fruit in terms of conversions. Uh, but there's no doubt that she and her co-workers found ways to make the gospel known all over Algeria. So you might think, why, why am I telling you a story about someone who was not the sort of one person that saw thousands and millions of people converted? Uh, like, there are those stories, but I kind of like this one because it's just a story of someone trying something, uh, taking the word of the gospel, and God does use it to change lives in an unmistakable way. So it's not the big flashy one, didn't see dramatic fruit in terms of conversions, but all over Algeria, the gospel became known, and so God's kingdom grew from her and her colleagues being like little mustard seeds, planting the Word of God in the lives of women in particular, and then God does His inevitable work. In her later years, she was confined to bed, um, but even then, uh, wanted to keep on doing what she could. Uh, she helped in translating the Bible into classical Arabic, and the resulting Gospels of Luke and John were, tr were distributed to many households. She saw this as a, a real key to making Christ known, getting Scripture into homes where it would be read and people could meet the true Jesus through um, the stories of uh, the, um, the Gospels in the Bible. Um, she even gained the respect of local Sufi mystics. Um, uh, they are a mystics, mystical sect of Islam. Uh, and, and she wrote for them The Way of the Sevenfold Secret in a style which uh, kind of resonated with their mystical teachings, and um, you can still get a hold of it and read it, it's quite fascinating, but um, it's a mystical exploration of the seven I am sayings in John's Gospel. Uh, so she found a way to, to take John's Gospel and, and communicate that in a way that made sense to this mystical sect of Islam. 
Her friends record that in her final moments, she looked out of her window and exclaimed, a chariot and six horses. And a friend said, you are seeing beautiful things. And what we have recorded of her is uh, Lilius, her last words being, yes, many, many beautiful things. That was her last joyful response to those uh, that those who served with her got to hear. And I think it speaks of her enthusiasm for Christ and his gospel um, that had meant abandoning a life of creating beautiful things, I suppose, through her artwork, which might have brought her great fame and recognition. But instead, her last words really capture her life so well. She gave herself to serving Jesus. And in doing so, saw many beautiful things. Uh, lives transformed, the helpless healed, those living in outer darkness, as she saw it, being brought under the light of the gospel. So here we have just a small example of the way the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It starts off in a small in Lilius's life, but God grows her passion for his kingdom and leads her to find ways to make a great impact in the lives of others. It starts off with a few, probably fairly easy to overlook women, British women, doing this random thing in North Africa, North Africa, who end up being the reason why many women there find eternal life in Jesus. The kingdom of God often can look unimpressive, like a tiny mustard seed, but because of God's work through uh, Lilius and her friends, many people right now are eternally thankful that this women, woman took to heart the outer darkness they lived in and filled it with light. And so, I think the challenge that this parable leaves us with, uh, well, there's lots of them, but, but here's one. Uh, don't underestimate the impact that something small can make. Jesus is continuing to do this mysterious and wonderful kingdom work of taking tiny things and making them great, useful, significant, wonderful things. Things like Lilius's life and love and service, but also things like your and my life and love and service. And in fact, as we go about that, the impact, the contrast is inevitable. It always has been. The seed grows into a tree. Yes, you might think, I'm just a nobody, I'm not very impressive, that might be true, but the point is that we, just like Lilius, serve a king who himself looked like a nobody, but became the resurrection and the life. So, let's be hopeful that we individually and as a church community as well, it's good not just to think about this as individuals, but as a, a church community, uh, uh, that we can watch Jesus take small things like us, our efforts, our prayers, our lives, our words, as we hold out the gospel to a world around us. We can be hopeful that in time we will watch them grow into something wonderful. Amen. So, let's, let's pray to that end and um, uh, will you join me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the wonderful work that you uh, you do and continue to do, um, that work that is like a mustard seed, that can look so insignificant but ends up becoming something unmissable, unmistakable and wonderful. Uh, thank you for the, the example we have and the, the encouragement we have from hearing about uh, the way you took uh, Lilius and uh, not only saved her but gave her a heart for the lost, 
um, that led her to a part of the world that she um, had the privilege of seeing you, uh, yeah, work to bring people to yourself. And we thank you for the way that you uh, don't just do that through people like her, you continue to do that all the time, you, you promise to, to do that through us, individually, through our community, and so please keep us hopeful. May this, may the encouragement of this parable, that you can take insignificant things and turn them into something great, be something that fuels our, uh, our efforts, our prayers, our lives, and our words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.